There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi, this is Sean Cahill, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. We have made it to December in what has been a crazy, crazy year, 2020. It's almost 2021, and who knows what that's going to bring around the corner. Just before we get to my guest on the show this week, uh, I want to just remind everyone, we've got the Room 101 Christmas special coming up. That is where I'm going to be recording with uh, Undead Gaucho, Dan and Dave from Shadows of Your Mind again. And what we are asking former guests and listeners to do is send in something from ufology you want to consign to Room 101, something you wish we could get rid of, we could delete, we could bin. It can be lighthearted, it can be serious. I'm more than happy to take all suggestions, and we've had a lot of really great stuff coming in. Some of the American listeners weren't too sure of what Room 101 was from a it's a brittle old British comedy show that used to be on. So, yeah, that hopefully gives a bit of an explanation for it as well. There were a few more Bonus shows coming in December, and I'll give uh, some hints as to what they're going to be in the next week or two as I kind of firm things up. And I just want to drop in that I've potentially got one huge guest or two lined up for January as well. So 2021 might start off with an absolute bang for the podcast. So keep an eye on that. Um, And speaking of big, big guests, we've got someone who is very relevant and very recently in the news for various different reasons uh, in the world of UAPs and UFOs. So on the show with me now, we'll have an author, podcaster, researcher, among many other things, if you go off of his website. Uh, Most recently, he is one of the original founders of the very exciting The Debrief Project. I've got Micah Hanks on with me now. Micah, how are we this evening? Andy, wonderful to be here, coming to you from the high country of Appalachia and across the great pond to you there in the highlands of Scotland. So good here to uh, be here with you and, uh, of course, to finally link up. Yeah, thank you. That was a very coast-to-coast-esque intro there from you as well. So uh, I like that. Thanks. Um, so yeah, uh, Micah, listen, it's been a bit of a manic few weeks for you, has it, has it not? Oh, Yes. It certainly has. Uh, that seems to be par for the course this day and age. If you're commenting on UFOs, uh, you know, and as of course you probably know, I have a wide array of interests. Um, UFOs are certainly a significant part of that, and they have been in recent days. And so it's been a lot of you know, get up at six or seven and work until about ten at night kind of days. But hey, you know, uh, it's it's enjoyable. If I didn't love it, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, and listen, like you say, you've got a wider range of interests outside of this. You've got a lot of archaeological background and, you know, part of SCU, UAPs, UFOs. Um, There was a massive list, and if this was going to be a four-parter, we could have definitely done a whole lot more. But I think I've married to narrow narrow it down then for for this first episode, at least, and absolutely have you back on in 2021, I'm sure. I'd love to. Listen, we're going to get to talking about the events of the last few weeks anyway, but I want to start off just asking you about what got you to this point in your life where you are so involved in the UFO and UAP subject. So take me back to even if it's childhood as far back as that. Yeah. You know, my first love really is biology, I guess. And uh, when I was very small, I mean, maybe four or five years old, 
my parents, you know, gave me books and that was on request. I wanted to know about the kinds of stories my mom used to tell around the campfire when I was a kid. And uh, often the kinds of things that generally we'll be discussing today would often come up in those campfire tales, but I kept wanting to know more. And so my dad is really, truly, I think, one of my biggest inspirations. He is a uh, not only a language scholar and among other things, but he also is a bibliophile. He loves books. And as a child, one of the best gifts I had was, you know, growing up in a nice, you know, house out in the country that my parents built where dad had a library upstairs. And he had collected books from over the years. He was never the kind of person to get rid of books. And some of the ones that he passed along to me at that early age were books by Ivan Sanderson. You know, Ivan Sanderson, a guy with a background in the sciences, but also who firmly kept one foot planted in the speculative, but also a native of Scotland like yourself. And, you know, I think I think he was a person who he was a little too far out there with his interests for many even in his day, but especially by today's scientific standards. But I think for me as a young reader, you know, reading books by uh, Sanderson really instilled in me a wonder and a sense for the what if, right? The idea that maybe uh, there is more to the sciences, more to the world than what we know. Uh, He's best known, of course, for that seminal work on hominology, the uh, famous book called Abominable Snowmen Legend Come to Life, He also wrote a very interesting book called Invisible Residence, which has, I think, uh, it's probably not going to be something a lot of people who are following the current UAP debate, uh, who are fairly new to it, I mean, will know about. But it's a very relevant book in that regard, because that was really the first book that I think was a significant look uh, from the perspective of someone like Sanderson, looking at the idea of UFOs coming out of or going into water, large bodies of water, uh, which... I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. But again, so those kinds of books were very interesting to me as a young person. Now, at some point along the way, I mean, maybe I could thank actually a third grade teacher I had who was very much more on the skeptical side of things. I wrote my first UAP report, although we called them UFOs back then, Andy. And uh, that was in third grade. Uh, And I got, a, I think, a B plus on the report. She took off points because she said it's well written, but, you know, the subject matter, this is something that there's not enough hard evidence to support. And she kind of stood me up in front of the class and, you know, very gently called me out. But I remember slumping my shoulders, you know, and putting on a show. And then um, I just went at it full bore, I think, from that point on. And I think that she had hoped to maybe gently steer my attention over more toward the sciences. Now, in a way she did because because of the way that she presented the, you know, skeptical challenge, it caused me to orient my thinking even at an early age much more toward the sciences. And initially when I enrolled in college after a high school, I was studying psychology and biology, but I had to drop out because I had an opportunity to go work in radio and then media kind of took center stage, but I never forgot that early inclination to always have a skeptical mind for things, but rather than dropping the subject, You know, I started checking out more books from the library on that topic and thinking, well, how can I harden my argument? How can I, if, you know, if it's necessary that we be skeptical, how can I strengthen the argument I'm trying to make? So that resulted in some parent-teacher conferences and things because, you know, they were a little worried. They were like, you know, your son is really into into this UFO stuff. Um, This could be a problem. And yet again, my mom and dad having exposed me to some of that, uh, you know, at an early age, they said, here's what's most important to us. He's reading. You know, I think this is maybe the first time that a teacher has ever come to us and been concerned that our son is reading and won't get his nose out of books. We're really thankful for that. So 
let him read. And so they had to agree to disagree. I think by fourth grade, my teacher had less problem with my interest in that subject, you know, but so that's kind of where it began for me. But, you know, I also remember an early book uh, at that around that time was uh, Raymond Fowler's uh, UFOs, Interplanetary Visitors. I obtained a uh, like a paperback, mass market paperback copy of that. And remember seeing this schematic for a, a proposed UFO detector in the back of that book. And yet again, that was highly influential because, I mean, at an early age, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, whatever the source of the phenomenon is, if if there's something to it, how do we build this detector? How do we study this? You know, I think that's where my mind was from those early experiences moving forward. And you have described yourself on, on the website, at least as a hopeful skeptic. And I, I like that because you, you've got that scientific approach to what is a subject that how how do you study this scientifically almost and unless you've got access to certain data that may or may not exist and certain parts of videos that may or may not exist and there's so much out there it's very hard but you've got to I think have a little bit of imagination as well as it comes along and I think that's where people have maybe less favor with me recently than they have had in the past but like Neil deGrasse Tyson I used to love listening to his podcasts and shows and over the last couple of years, he's been so vehemently against, you know, there's no such thing as UFOs. There's no such thing as aliens. We would have seen them by now. And the British press, Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, um, recently again has come out and said, here's why there's no aliens potentially anywhere near us. And they, they just don't seem to have, they've got the scientific mind and these people are no doubt borderline geniuses, but they just can't seem to branch off and have that little bit of, you know, but what if? And I think that's what I seem to find in your interviews and the way you come across that you can certainly ask, yeah, but what if? Yeah, I find that there's this interesting kind of kind of dichotomy, you know, between people's attitudes about these subjects, UFOs, UAP especially. Um, you know, I am a fan of Dr. Tyson. He came to my town of Asheville and my good pal Aaron and I went and, uh, you know, saw his presentation and it was funny and he's a great educator, but again, those were my big takeaways. And that's not by any means to say he's not a brilliant thinker. I certainly think he is, but he also recognizes the role as a science educator and he can't go out there and put everyone to sleep with equations. He's got to get up there and give talks like he did when he visited my town, like, you know, an astrophysicist goes to the movies. But when I saw that come up and this is the title of his lecture for the night, I was thinking, Oh, we're going to talk about movies. Okay. It was a lot of fun, but yeah, you know, I want to hear his thoughts on the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You know, I want to hear his thoughts about, you know, the discovery of gravity waves and what this means and the further vindication of Einstein's hypotheses in relation to relativity and things like that. I mean, those are the things I want to hear him talking about. And so, you know, you got to find that balance where you can say, here's what science really is, but now here's how we make it relatable to people. Now, I had seen after in 2017, the New York Times article, which we might call the shot heard around the world when that first dropped. When the three uh, newly released at that time, although one had been online for several years at that point, but they were fairly new to the public awareness, we'll say, these three videos uh, obtained by the U.S. Navy and purporting to show unidentified aerial phenomenon. When these first appeared online, I remember uh, Dr. Tyson appearing on CNN and, you know, I'm seeing this very unusual discussion unfold where the CNN anchors were saying, what is in that video? And Dr. Tyson says, I don't know what's in that video. I don't know what that is. That's not my job. And one of the anchors kind of stops him and says, but it is your job. You look at the sky. You're supposed to know what that is. And I'm thinking, 
Not necessarily. Now, of course, Dr. Tyson knows this, but you know, it was such a funny statement coming from the CNN anchors that they don't seem to really have a good understanding of what, you know, the director of the Hague Planetarium or anyone else involved in astronomy, you know, is or, or physics is is doing. They presume, oh yeah, I guess this guy looks at the sky and so he's gonna know if aliens exist. Not necessarily, and that especially evidenced by some of you know his more skeptically inclined statements, Dr. Tyson, about this subject. Now, he has long been, I think, fairly critical of it, as others in his discipline have been and in related disciplines. Uh, the late Stephen Hawking had many times over the years said that he could discount UFOs in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence because if they existed or if UFOs represented ET visitation – and this is his rationale, then why would they only present themselves to cranks and weirdos? And I'm thinking, you know, that is not a, in my opinion, coming from a person who is historically inclined and who has read extensively about not only the UFO issue, but also especially U.S. government and also governments from around the world and their interest in this at times in, as a matter of national security. I didn't find uh, Dr. Um, Hawking's respect him, though I do, you know, the late Hawking, um, I don't find that as an evidence-based statement, right? I further also think that it was intentionally meant to sound pejorative so that he could make a joke, you know, that would be effectively a wink, you know, that his colleagues would recognize. But again, it was a dismissive statement that at worst came across sounding arrogant um, at very least, it conveyed a certain ignorance on his own part with relation to what the actual topic entails. Now, I, as you mentioned, am a hopeful skeptic. And by that, I mean, I try to remain open-minded. Now, a lot of people would think that makes no sense. Why would you say that you're a hopeful skeptic if what you mean is that you're open-minded? But again, here's the problem. When I'm seeing brilliant scientists like Dr. Tyson, like the late Dr. Stephen Hawking, and they're making statements that seem to convey having very little knowledge on their part of the UFO issue. And therefore they speak somewhat out of turn and make very broad sweeping statements that they use their own background as justification for without having actually studied perhaps what the bot, the some body of UFO literature would you know suggest, which is again, only that there appears to be a technological presence that has been observed at least since the end of the second world war. But you know, for which there may be some historical data in support of even prior to that, and that there are instrumental capabilities like radar and more recently the Raytheon, you know, you know, Atflir targeting pod as was used for the uh, capture of the phenomena in the Navy videos. Again, there's instrumental capabilities that we as humans possess that seem to convey that there's a phenomena that's difficult to study, hard to even, you know, watch because it can move so quickly, but we can nonetheless track and discern its presence. Again, that's really what UFOs are. We don't know what the source behind it is. There are a lot of speculations about that, and there have been for a long time. And so, again, as a hopeful skeptic, what I try to do is I say I acknowledge what appears to be a growing body of evidence and a body of evidence that's really been growing for several decades now. But I recognize a body of evidence that is strongly suggestive of something little understood, but for which there appears to be a scientific reality. And I leave it at that. I don't make any further suppositions about what the source may be, although I would like to know. But again, when I see very, very well-educated, you know, astronomers, physicists, and scientists in other disciplines saying, well, there's no evidence of aliens, and here's why. 
I say, well, first of all, who said aliens necessarily? Second of all, let's talk about UFOs in the context of what we know them to be, not what speculations about them might be uh, entails. And again, to his credit, when asked on CNN, Dr. Tyson simply said, when you know, looking at the videos in question, I don't know what that is. He says, our government's looking at that. That's not what I do. That's not what as a scientist I'm tasked with doing. I don't know what that is, but I'm glad our government's looking at it. So to his credit, actually, I don't think he is necessarily as in disagreement with my own perspectives on UFOs. But I do feel like there is a touch of perhaps hubris that many scientists lead with when they try to address that topic. Hopefully that's something that changes as we move forward into next year and the year after. And again, people like yourself, Tim, uh, MJ, Ryan Sprague, uh, now involved, and others with a, a project like the debrief that we're going to get to will help change that conversation because it's a much more serious look. And and again, I'll, I'll have to state now because it'd be very easy to dismiss this or, or, or pass by this. The debrief is not just about UFOs and UAPs. There are various different sections and we'll get to that as well. I just want to take a step back though, Micah. Um, so that, it's really interesting how you've kind of came to that point and through schooling and reading and literature and you have a background and interest in science, but then the kind of UFO, UAP part always came into it. Did you ever have any sightings yourself growing up or see anything that you couldn't necessarily explain? Yes, but I find it highly doubtful that it was anything truly anomalous. Uh, when I was yet again, five years old, um, and I think this is significant for other reasons I'll get to here in a moment. But yes, when I was five years old, coming home from my grandparents' house, I was standing out in the yard with my parents, and I saw a white light over my uh, house before we went inside. And uh, to me, the appearance of or the shape of this light, imagine a roughly rectangular shape with a maybe a triangle appended to one end. So, you know, at least in a two-dimensional sort of uh, way, it sort of vaguely resembled a rocket in shape, okay? And uh, I remember, as I knocked my microphone here, you may want to edit that. I remember <laughs> right. I remember uh, looking up at that and, and calling attention to this object, uh, you know, to my parents, and they weren't as interested in it as I was. And so then the next day at school, I remember sitting with my friend Brandy. She and I were sitting there, you know, with scissors and like, you know, construction paper cutting things out. And uh, I said, Brandy, I think I saw a UFO last night. And I described what I had seen. And she said, well, no, that's not a UFO, Micah. What that is, is that's the Pizza Hut sign. And I said, what's the Pizza Hut sign? And she says, well, that's just like kind of like the bat signal. You know, you got to keep in mind, this was 1988. So the Batman film was, you know, fresh in the theaters. Mm -hmm. And she said, just like the Batman signal, Pizza Hut has a sign that they flash up into the sky to remind people that they want to go get pizza. And so what was really funny to me about that ex that exchange and thinking back about it is, uh, you know, one, at age five, I seem to have a pretty good working knowledge already of what a quote-unquote UFO was, right? Uh, I don't remember my parents ever really, I mean, I, I mentioned that they had introduced me to some, some literature and things like that, but I mean, there was never like a, now don't forget, Micah, the UFOs are up there, it was never anything like that. And in fact, at that point, most of the books that I had been interested in, like, you know, Sanderson's work, involved the more biological mysteries, you know, purported relict hominoids, otherwise known as, you know, wild men or Sasquatch things along those lines, you know. I mean, that's the sort of stuff I was really more interested in. And so I found it interesting that, you know, at that early age, I had a working knowledge of the concept of, you know, a strange light in the sky UFO. 
And then I go to school the next day and a friend is immediately kind of telling me, oh, no, no, there's an, there's a, an explanation for that. And I'm thinking, you know, even for kids, they, you know, we don't miss anything. And so remembering back, the most interesting thing to me about that was the way I interpreted a light in the sky as being something unusual. Uh, and, and then a friend was more skeptically inclined. That's, I mean, that's a, a perfect corollary for the broader UAP debate as it continues to this day. Now, again, looking back, I'm sure what I saw was just an aircraft of some kind. And hence my reason for, or rather my parents' reason for not being particularly interested in, uh, in it. But, you know, I, I, I find thinking back on that interesting for a lot of reasons, more, you know, I think akin to the psychology of the UFO experience and that long-held tradition of humans looking into the sky and seeing things they can't identify and ascribing agency to it. That's what I think I did as a child. I think people have done that for a long, long time and still do it today. Yeah, and you know what? When you look into the sky, you can certainly identify something more than likely as being an aircraft or I live in a relatively rural area in the north of England and you see quite a lot of satellites or what I imagine is a satellite because I'm just using common sense and logic that I can't see that that point of light moving from point A to point B in the sky is a satellite. But what I do look at is it's moving relatively similar speed from what i can see it's going in what looks like a relatively straight line or you know geocentric orbit you know whatever they want to call it but if if it zigzags if it stops if it shoots off then it's something else even then i'm having this podcast called that ufo podcast i still don't jump to oh it's aliens but i've seen a couple of things that i've talked about on the podcast in the past that i couldn't explain and it's definitely something that i would love to know what it was and that's, that's the thing with a subject that you've got people that are so adamant that what they see can definitely be explained. But then I think you've got so many things that you can't explain. But then on the other hand, you can't just jump to everything being an alien spacecraft. Or oh. my pet hate, as I've discussed more recently, is people declaring the names of craft they can see as being TR-3B because they have sought on a patent once. And it's like, yeah, you, you don't know that. Um, you don't know that's not US military, Chinese, Russian, could be aliens, could be, I don't know, whatever. But it's just unknown. And that's what we are getting to see more and more in, in these photo, photographs and videos. And we're going to come at the photographs soon. So listen, um, you've talked about uh, being a hopeful skeptic. How do you think, especially in your time involved in this subject and a professional point of view, the scientific study of UAPs has changed? Has, have you seen it change? Not a whole lot. I think, you know, right after the phenomena was first recognized, again, I, uh, I'm not a person who necessarily ascribes to ideas like, you know, ancient astronaut theory. I have uh, on a few occasions sat down with uh, Eric Von Daniken, who was, you know, essentially the man who really brought that idea uh, into the public dialogue uh, with his famous book, Chariots of the Gods. Uh, you know, and, and he's an interesting guy to talk to, especially on account of the fact that we were in Bermuda one time and he and Ramon Sercher, his uh, assistant, a good friend, a wonderful guy too. We were out there having a glass of cognac, you know, weather was far too hot for a, a beverage, you know, like that, but nonetheless we were having one and I think he was smoking. And, you know, Von Daniken's very dismissive of UFO researchers. And I kind of asked him, you know, why? And he said, you know, all this nonsense that they get involved in, you know, uh, all these, all these government conspiracies and all this stuff, he says it completely detracts from the serious research. And it was a very interesting, you know, experience hearing him say that and, and, you know, taking the perspective that, 
serious research is establishing the his, you know the historical component. And uh, you know, even Carl Sagan, he said, did that. Now that's true. Early on, Sagan had certainly looked at the possibility that there might be evidence since antiquity that would represent extraterrestrial visitation. And yes, he was Sagan, influenced by the you know high number of the high volume at that time, you might say, of UFO reports that were occurring. And especially prior to the University of uh, Colorado UFO project led by Edward Condon, that essentially for the time finally kind of put a damper on serious UFO dialogue for a number of years. Uh, and for reasons we won't get into right now, but I'm just, you know, kind of marking that as sort of a pinpoint on the historical survey, so to speak. Uh, you know, prior to that, certainly Sagan was as interested as many other scientists at that time were in the UFO issue. Um, but with time and with further review of the evidence, he was less inclined to think that there was a strong case to be made for early visitation than guys like Von Daniken had been. And I strongly suspect also that the popular attention that guys like Von Daniken were getting and from someone outside the sciences also probably had the effect of sort of dissuading Sagan from wanting to be inclined toward looking for additional evidence. And so he kind of did a flip on that. Now, the reason I bring all that up is because, again, I'm more on Sagan's side of things. I don't see a tremendous amount of evidence that suggests necessarily that we can look for evidence of paleo contact or evidence of extraterrestrial visitation in the archaeological record. But nonetheless, I also think that there are, as far as written history goes, I think that there is at least a case to be made that the experience of looking into the sky, like I was describing from my own childhood, seeing something I can't identify, and then saying, what is that? And then beginning to project agency onto it as I run through a series of speculations about what it could be. Okay, that is, I've, I think, really fundamentally what the UFO experience is. And the reason I like to frame it like that is because that takes the idea of extraterrestrial spacecraft out of the equation somewhat, and it allows us to say, you know, within a general framework of what the UFO experience means to a human, we can now kind of look at this. Now, a very similar idea, and in fact, I think that this had been highly influential on me using that approach, um, was put forward in Jacques Vallée's first book on this subject, uh, which was, of course, Anatomy of a Phenomenon. The first, I think, really popular pro-UFO book written by a scientist. Keep in mind that book was published before Dr. Uh, J. Allen Hynek, whom Vallée was working with at that time, uh, really came out and was publicly, he was certainly giving lectures at that time, but he was also at that time a advisor to the uh, you know, U.S. Air Force's Blue Book Project, he had written a book yet about UFOs and wouldn't for a few years uh, to come. And so here we have this, you know, this young French scientist still in his 20s, I believe, working there with Heineck. And he writes this book that, you know, in contrast with what Donald Menzel from Harvard University and other scientists at the time, much like the scientists of today who are more skeptically inclined, you know, he was really the first to do that. The first scientist to really write a book about UFOs. Valet is sort of the anti-Menzel. And he writes, the, well, here is a pro perspective offered by a scientist. And in the, the very first few pages of that book, he says, we cannot take a UFO and we can't put it in a laboratory and we can't study a UFO in the laboratory, but we can study the UFO sighting. And he says, that's what with this book we will study scientifically. We study the UFO sighting. And so, again, I'm, I'm really kind of borrowing Valet's idea from early on. If we look at the experience of a person seeing something in the sky and we don't know what that is. And here is how we react to that. That's what we might call the UFO experience. 
And there is, I think, a case to be made that there is a deeper history of that kind of experience. And to understand that helps us move along toward understanding what the UFO might actually represent. But to your question about, well, has science changed much? I don't see much change since the days when Valet was saying, we can't take the UFO and bring it into a laboratory. Hey, guys, would you just hover right there for a minute and let us, you know, kind of examine you and you to take some readings with our, you know, Geiger counters and things. That's not happening. That still hasn't happened. And so you might say that the lack of, of momentum on account of the sciences is somewhat also in proportion to the lack of headway we have made toward actually getting a UFO and being able to study one, unless, of course, we prescribe to the ideas that they're crash record retrievals and that the government's already got one and they there or maybe several, and that therefore they have had time to study these things. So the big takeaways, as far as I'm concerned, are essentially that a science is uh, troubled by this because we don't have something physical that we can study. Therefore, scientists have to try and study what people do when they see UFOs. That is something that's certainly worth studying scientifically, but I don't see a whole lot of change. I do think, however, that you could make a case that there's a deeper history of those kinds of experiences by people who claim to have seen such things in the skies, if that makes sense. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And just to tag on a piece uh, for the Room 101 special for the listeners that will be coming out over Christmas, former guest on the show and um, a guest of Unidentified Season 2, David Marceau, his Room 101 very much centres around are we taking the wrong approach with the scientific method? Because can you apply the scientific method to what people want to get from UFO and UAP research and looking at the data? And do we have to look at something else? So that's quite interesting. Also, I just want to ask you, really interesting point you made on Eric Von Danigan mentioning that he doesn't like, and it's quite interesting to think of, given you know what Ancient Aliens has become and everything, UFO researchers and what they've been involved in, because it can detract from what he sees as... A, a quite specific part of the phenomenon and what he believes should be studied, looking at that historical background. Do you think that's why so many people have an issue with Lou Elizondo and To The Stars Academy? Because again, what they have done is take a part of the phenomenon and they've, they've gone down a, th a threat narrative, one which I think I understand, which a lot of people don't, and they take the wrong way. They are not talking about attacking aliens, is what some people seem to take this as. They are just talking about, you know, we have something coming into our secure military guarded airspace that we cannot secure against. And, you know, if these things are doing what they say they're doing, then that's something we should really take a concerned look at. And a lot of people, given the subject and the size of it, and, you know, people talk about abductions, alien races coming from different galaxies, the Palladians, tall Nordics, greys, Antarctic bases, Nazis in the moon, right? There's all this stuff comes as part of it. You're always going to upset a large part of this, let's call it community, because you're taking a very small part of it and saying, this is what we want to look at. And whether people like it or not, and you may or may not disagree with this, Micah, it's been the most successful way to look at this for a long, long, long time because it's it's making headway and it is showing signs for me of progress, the way to the stars have gone about it. Oh, yeah. Um, so a few things to unpack there. Um, inherently from its you know outset, from its launch, the To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences was essentially a commercial enterprise. And Tom DeLonge was never unclear about that. I mean, he was he was very upfront about the fact that he wanted to do publishing. He wanted to, you know, create everything from art and music, but also to study this phenomenon. It was this kind of a hybrid model 
with what he was launching, um, which I think, you know, some people might consider what I'm about to say far more controversial than I intended to be or should it be taken as, but I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if that's what he wanted to do, hey, you know, all, all the better, right? Um, it might have been a different st- uh, question if he had claimed that To the Stars was something else entirely, and yet he was trying to, you know, essentially monetize it or do whatever behind the scenes. But again, I felt like Tom was always very forthcoming about, hey, look, we're a media company that also looks at UFOs. Now, would I like to see a slightly more serious approach to the study of the phenomenon? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, but you have to hand it to him yet again that to the stars have made tremendous inroads toward bringing broader awareness to this topic. Now, the other problems inherent with that are that in addition to the fact that some people see it as being somewhat less impactful on account of the fact that it has been a primarily commercial endeavor. And that extends also to the, you know, program unidentified. Well, you know, if it's real UFO research, it's not going to be done on television. You know, one of my other interests is archaeology. And I hear the very same thing from my friends in archaeology and also archaeologists who are well-known and who have appeared on television. They will say, you know, there is research and then there's what goes on TV. Very interesting side note here, by the way. I remember talking with Von Daniken and uh, Ramon about this and and them saying they aren't very fond of, I won't name it here, but I'll just say a particular television show that Von Daniken's been on an awful lot. And I said, you know, what is your issue with it? And he said, that's all TV. That's entertainment. And unfortunately, a lot of the people who watch that are more religious minded in the way that they look at what's happening than, than I am inclined. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, you know, for me, the research is about the research, not about this TV stuff. Um, again, I, I think that probably in truth, uh, many people who have an issue with the program unidentified, you know, and see that as a commercial endeavor rather than serious UFO research, they're not wrong to think that. But I think that they would be very surprised to see that Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo probably have essentially the same feelings. But those two have the foresight to understand that if we want to be able to make headway, we really have to be able to put this idea out in front of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I commend them for that. And unfortunately, it has long been a tradition that television is one of the quickest and most effective ways of doing that. But because of the effectiveness of putting a message out in front of people and, you know, steering sort of a cultural dialogue on a topic and a controversial one like this, uh, that that uh, everything we're talking about there sort of entails, one must also recognize the fact that people are inherently going to look at it, therefore, and say, okay, so they are on television. So they are steering the narrative. So they are, you know, kind of actually steering the way that this discussion is occurring and the way that the public interest in and public attitudes toward UFOs are going, what are they really up to? Right? So the other side of it is that there's this conspiratorial element, which interestingly, I even see among some of the hardline UFO skeptics, they may be UFO skeptics and they would, you know, pride themselves as being skeptical, but they're as prone to conspiracy theorizing. Okay. And I use that in the operational sense of the word, it's literal meaning. I mean, many of the skeptics are as conspiratorially minded as some of the UFO buffs in the sense that they cannot take it as just being a TV show with a couple of guys who have a background in government, another one who's a rock star, and a bunch of them who were scientists who worked for government. They can't see it as just a bunch of guys who all have their diverse backgrounds doing a TV show talking about UFOs because they think the subject's important. Now, Occam's razor for me would say that I can't rule out anything. You know, I can't rule out 
global cabals and conspiracy theories and things like that. But I would certainly say that I think the simplest and most parsimonious idea is that the show Unidentified is a TV show with a bunch of guys who worked in government, a bunch of scientists and a rock star talking about UFOs. What draws them to the subject? Is it a psychological operation to control government or, or you know public opinion about UFOs? More likely to me, it's a bunch of guys who are interested in UFOs. They did a little work on that in government. They were, as Lou Elizondo's, uh, you know, his, um, uh, um, or what is it, his resignation letter, you know, at the mm-hmm. time that he actually left the Pentagon seems to convey, uh, they were upset about how little was being done in government. To your point, Andy, uh, Lou Elizondo, and I know this from having spoken with him before off the mic myself, but again, he's very concerned about the threat potential. Okay, as a national security threat, that certainly carries over as a main theme on the show. Now, that raises another problem if we're to really break this down and analyze it. But why the hell not? It's fun, right? Yeah, go on. Yeah. So the other aspect there, too, is that some people say, well, they are unnecessarily peddling or, you know, fear. They are fear mongering. And you're right. You know, when you say that that's not maybe the best perception of. Uh, or the understanding of the threat assessment angle that they seem to be trying to convey on this show. To me, again, what we are saying is not that there is an apparent or overt threat, but that if there is a significantly advanced technology in our midst, which we cannot identify and which does not appear to be our own, then we absolutely must take that seriously. Now, again, back to the resignation of Lou Elizondo. If government isn't taking that seriously enough, why in the world? I mean, I don't understand what could possibly be the modus operandi behind government not taking a significant technology far more advanced than ours seriously as a, again, national security threat. Inherently, UFOs are that whether or not they seem to be threatening. So if we're to talk about the threatening aspect, it is to recognize the difference between a national security threat, okay, an operational threat to national security and an actual threat. Very different things. So in some total, Unidentified to me is a very interesting show, arguably the best show that's come out in years, in my opinion, on the UFO subject. And I say that I think from a pretty objective standpoint, and I haven't actually watched every episode. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of TV, but what episodes I've seen are well done. Um, and I do think that what the guys are trying to achieve is being achieved. It's bringing to the public awareness the apparent presence of a technology and one that I think that scientists and government should be taking seriously. And speaking of a group of guys trying to bring uh, an awareness of an apparently advanced technology to the public awareness, let's talk about the debrief. So this has been something that was uh, teased and hinted at and for a little while on the UFO Twitter that we all know and love or love-hate. Some of us have that relationship with it. Oh, yeah. We were hearing drops about potentially the 2nd of December, there was going to be an article, a video, a picture. So all these different rumours started. And we know what can happen when things are overhyped. You know, those arguments have gone on and on. Um, Tim McMillan, really prominent on Twitter. Uh, Someone, if you go back to my fifth and sixth episode, it was an interview with Tim McMillan. And then my sixth guest was MJ Benias as well, both involved in a debrief and yourself. And I am right in saying, I don't want to leave anyone out, that you're the three founding members. Would that be the right way to put it? We are the three founding members. It's funny, the debrief uh, as an idea actually predated Tim and MJ and I working on it together, all three of us. Although I would really say that, I mean, Tim was, you know, with me right there at the very beginning about it uh, and how it all came together and, and why I make that delineation is because 
Again, I had wanted for a while with all that's happened since 2017, I had wanted to try and launch a website that would offer uh, a, or would provide a platform where we could raise the bar on the delivery of and the quality of the con- of the conversation related to UFOs. And uh, so the debrief idea came to mind uh, and I acted pretty quickly on it at initially, but I didn't say anything to anybody. You know, I kept it very, you know, quiet. I called Tim McMillan, I think the night I literally, uh, you know, decided to buy the domain and, you know, start, you know, trying to actuate something. I called him and said, Tim, you got a minute. And uh, now that said, we talked about it for a long time and I had always conceived of it as a UFO blog at some point, And that was uh, shortly after the pandemic, you know, started here in the United States. It was actually on my birthday. Tim and I were on the telephone. I couldn't leave my house and go out and party. You know, we were under a lockdown here. And so, you know, Tim and I took the opportunity just to talk on the telephone. He's in Germany now, of course, they're in Rhineland. So, you know, we, we just spoke on the telephone and kind of were going over some ideas and things. And he called me back on the following Sunday and said, you know, that idea, uh, what would you think if, if we tried to, you know, maybe get some other people involved and broaden this concept a little bit? And I said, you know, I'd be open to that. And so, you know, it was just a matter of days, you know, before, Tim and MJ and I were really sitting down talking, looking at different operations, looking at different, you know, possibilities as far as investments, you know, things like that. Um, but at that time, we hadn't really thought about this idea that I'd had. We were looking at every other different name you could imagine. Uh, you know, we were looking at all the, I mean, the, the fundamental idea, which was let's looking at, let's look at disruptive technology. Let's look at science, technology, defense, you know, national security, mm-hmm. but let's also talk about UFOs from time to time. That was absolutely what we were looking at doing. And that's really, again, why I make that distinction, because, you know, this UFO blog idea that I'd had and the idea that Tim and MJ and I started working on together were very different. But the way that things come back around full circle, we got to a point where we realized, you know, we're really going to just have to launch this ourselves as a completely self-funded, home-built effort. And uh, at some point, I think MJ heard about the name, the debrief, and said, what is that? What's the debrief? Why don't we just do that? And it was funny because, um, you know, they say sometimes that uh, the the journey really uh, is is not so much about the destination, but the journey that you have. And then you make your way home only to realize that where you wanted to be was, you know, where you began and the place that you knew the best all along. So in a strange roundabout way, after months of, you know, talks and planning and all these kind of things, it ended up being that we said, you know, let's launch the debrief, but make it this idea that the three of us have come together with. And so, Again, you know, there's the original idea, and then there's the three co-founders, and that's kind of how it all came together. Um, but it had been our opinion all along that, um, you know, obviously Tim and I especially really love to talk about UFOs. Arguably, maybe of the three of us, um, I uh, engage that subject the most. Uh, MJ, I have to hand it to him; he's very much of the mind that he wants not to just, you know, just talk about UFOs. Yeah. And so I've got to thank the guys because in order to really have a serious dialogue about UFOs like MJ and Tim also have really recommended in order to have that dialogue and do it seriously, it can't just be exclusive to UFOs, you know, and, and again, I really share that view. The the dialogue has to be moved out of, well, this is something that the UFO people talk about. It needs to be moved over into the realm of, well, this is something that scientists talk about. This is something that journalists write about. This is something that politicians look at and take seriously. You know, this is something that world leaders are aware of. This is something that, you know, people are interested in just like any other science or technology, just like any other development in those fields. Yes, this is something that is taken seriously for the national security, you know, 
the actual implications, uh, you know, involving security and and you know threat potential. So, yeah, that's really in in short what the debrief is all about. And uh, as it's come together, I really think that the name kind of is is a perfect fit and bespeaks how we try to approach things because a lot of sites are just trying to throw news, you know, throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Our approach is very much in that tradition of a debrief, right? It's sort of like you've heard the news. Now, here is a breakdown of what that means. That's what we're trying to do with it. And yeah, we're still going to report on UFOs. I mean, it may not be every day, but I mean, that's going to be a subject that and that's really been part of the founding uh, you know, idea behind it. We want to talk about that, but we want to talk about it in a way that is inclusive rather than exclusive. Too much of ufology these days, I think, still is exclusive. Yeah, that's what I love about it as well. And it's something, listen, let's be honest, my podcast, if someone comes across my podcast or wants to to show a friend uh, an introduction to the UFO subject or listen to this interview with this guy or listen to this interview with this woman, at the end of the day, they can probably see at a glance, just from the logo, this guy is a fan of UFOs and we'll be talking about UFOs, even if they know the phrase UAP, aliens, all the things that encompass that. However, if I want to introduce people to the UFO subject, I usually try and come at it from a different point of view where I talk a lot about TTSA. Look, these guys have military backgrounds, government backgrounds. They're really important people in really high-profile jobs, and here's what they were involved in. This is their interest as well. The debrief, I think, gives us another vehicle for that because what I can do is show people that have any sort of interest. Here are some guys who... They're not just, what was it, Stephen Hawkins called people the crazies or cooks or whatever yeah, it was. Cranks and weirdos, yeah, right. They, so they're not just cranks and weirdos who have a blog. And no offense to any cranks and weirdos out there, I'm a 34-year-old with a UFO podcast, okay? So I, I can say I can say that. However, I'm pretty weird too. <laughs> yeah, you've got to be in this subject. Yeah. But there, there's three serious guys, three journalists, author, authors, podcasters, whatever you want to label it, who are talking about governmental news, politics, you know, exopolitics, whatever you want to call it but they also have an interest in this subject because they can see the serious implications of it. So it's a really good way to introduce people to the subject. And that that's what I like about it. And you answered about three of my questions by talking about the name, the background and how it got there as well. So I appreciate that. The early weeks of launch, and I say weeks, it launched on the 30th of November. So we're not even uh, two weeks into it yet, but already it's it's really hit the ground running. If you, people haven't, which I'm sure they have, check it out. There's a lot of great content. It goes up almost daily. It's one of about three Twitter accounts that I have my notifications turned on for. I'm not just saying that because I, I wouldn't say otherwise. So people could probably guess the other two. Um, <laughs> the, the site itself, though, it's had its controversies already. Uh, I know you've done a really good interview with Ryan Sprague, all three of you, which has uh, allowed me to change my questioning a little bit and make it more personal to you and your experience so far. Can you just tell us then, Micah, what's the early week or week and a half of the launch been like? Well, it's been very hectic. Um, We also have received a whole lot more traffic than I expected. You know, I I built the site and I thought, you know, I'm I'm going to try to uh, establish a site that uh, is capable of performing far better so that, you know, we won't be surprised. <laughs> well, there's an old expression, uh, you know, that goes, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans for the future. And so, you know, ev- even with the, even with the extra links that I had personally gone to, I mean, we ended up being fairly swamped by traffic. And again, you know, I have to hand it to my colleague, Tim McMillan. He may do things a little differently from how I would do it. And in truth, how most in the UFO community would do it. Uh, but, you know, he he gets out there and he certainly drops, you know, little pings of interest, you know, yeah. and um, 
that in itself is a bit controversial, but it had the effect of really generating a lot of interest. And so, yeah, even prior to launch, we were getting a lot of attention. Um, and then by the time we launched, uh, we quickly had to bring on another gentleman by the name of Steve McDaniel. So as you mentioned, you know, uh, Tim and MJ and I are the three founding, you know, co-founding members of the debrief as it has come to exist. But, you know, Steve McDaniel's also come on board in recent days, as well as a number of freelance contributors. You mentioned Ryan Sprague yourself there uh, a moment ago, and he, of course, has uh, now contributed several articles, and we've got a few others too. And so, you know, we, we've very quickly been kind of putting together a sort of, you know, group of people who are, you know, maintaining uh, content delivery and also main, make, making sure that the site stays up, as uh, Steve has certainly helped with. But, um, you know, the uh, the actual uh, first few days, apart from being hectic, were also kind of this wild ride where you never know exactly what to expect. And it's humorous to me uh, how many people look at what we do. And they, I mean, I was receiving phone calls from people wanting to know uh, who our wealthy backers were. There were threads online uh, speculating about who the real owners of the site were and who was behind it. Very good friends of mine, even still, I don't think 100% believe that it's just a site that three guys, you know, launched after I had decided to build a blog and, and, you know, Tim and MJ really were instrumental in, in, you know, raising the bar on that and helping it become something bigger than what I'd even originally planned. And um, it's it's hilarious in a lot of ways. I have to say that so many people um, read so much into everything. Uh, but on the other hand, it's flattering too, because again, um, as much pride as Tim and MJ and I take in just saying, you know, this is our thing and we just launched and we're just trying to do what we want to do and what we hope we can do best. The fact that people read so much into it and suspect that there's so much more going on and that there's so much private funding and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it is kind of flattering in the sense that people are like, okay, you know, there must be a big operation here. I can tell you it's not, you know, it's a lot of volunteer effort. Uh, it's a lot of people who have put in long hours, uh, you know, without the kind of pay or, you know, other kind of recompense that they deserve. But I'm so thankful for that. And I'm, you know, very grateful for all the people who do come to the website and do see it for what it actually is, which is it's effectively, you know, a blog or a news site that is trying to cover topics that are timely and important uh, but which maybe don't get as much attention in the mainstream. And we're also trying to discuss those things in a way that you often don't see in the mainstream. You know, so some have used the term, the A word, not alien, but alternative for us. You know, it's an alternative news site. Some people have said that. And I think maybe that's a fair description. I mean, we aren't exactly a mainstream news site, but we're certainly trying to cover the topics that we do everything from artificial intelligence to, you know, um, national security, um, astronomy, I mean, we've got, you know, military and defense issues. Yes, you know, UAP comes up from time to time and a whole range of other things. SpaceX, of course, and some of the developments right now and current uh, efforts toward, uh, you know, the next step that humanity is going to be taking in space exploration. Those are big things that we're really, really watching very closely and intently right now. That and machine learning. But again, you know, the people who have come to the site and they recognize it as, a site that's trying to have a different kind of discussion about topics that we don't see as much coverage of in the media. You know, I really appreciate the people who have supported it. That's what we're trying to do. And, uh, you know, I hope that we'll continue to do. And I'm sure it will. And I'm looking forward to what it brings next year, but I'm wary of time, but I do have a few more things I want to discuss with you. Okay. So, um, 
people, I don't have to drag this out because people have seen the articles. They saw Tim's article that dropped on the second. There was a lot of hype. Uh, Bob McGuire was on one of Grant Cameron's YouTube shows that started a whole fight within the, the UFO community and UFO Twitter uh, about, you know, hyping of photos that may or may not be released, may or may not be out there, videos and whatnot. And then out of nowhere, very quickly, uh, the debrief dropped another article which contained within it a photograph taken on uh, an F-18 jet, I believe it was, where a pilot with a cell phone is taking a picture of a potential UAP. This very quickly got a lot of people very excited uh, and it has since gone on to a lot of different mainstream media outlets as well. However, also then very quickly, people started posting, and this is such an odd thing to talk about, um, a picture of a child's character balloon that was batman which happened to have a very similar shape to or unique shape uh, like this object did as well um i just want you to talk on that because was that a frustrating at all i know that wasn't your piece of content directly but given the 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 serious objective nature of the debrief what it's trying to do uh, releases a photograph that it doesn't say again this is alien this is you know it was an unidentified object and it's apparently been passed around the intelligence community but to very quickly have someone jump online and say actually it's a child's character balloon what what were your thoughts on that uh, i didn't disagree with that assessment uh, that had essentially been mine as well um What's interesting is that the photo got a lot of attention uh, and a brief few points about that. The photo had appeared online, I, at least to my knowledge, as early as May. There had been people who had shared that image on Twitter, in fact, as early as May. It was not a new image. Uh, the reason that Tim McMillan reported on it, um, and, you know, I mean, he, he knows <laughs> uh, I had some reservations about putting it out because the photo to me resembled a mylar balloon. And I told Tim that at the time, I don't think that Tim disagreed. And in fact, you know, for those who have taken time to read the article that he wrote about it, uh, he also looks at that possibility. Uh, he looked at the possibility that it might have been an atmospheric instrument, you know, something that might've been used by, you know, a, a um, agency like NOAA or some other similar agency. Uh, and he spoke to an atmospheric scientist who also said that it didn't appear to be a radar transcon, but it, that, you know, it didn't, again, it did resemble a mylar balloon. So um, the atmospheric scientist quoted in the article is, essentially said what I said that I thought it was too. And then, although it didn't get, of course, as much attention because there wasn't a photo attached, we have a, a newsletter that goes out every week, which I write, which is called the intelligence brief. And one day after Tim's article dropped, uh, in that first inaugural edition of the intelligence brief, I pointed out, I said explicitly that the object appears to be a mylar balloon in our opinion. Now that didn't get as much attention as Tim's article, understandably. Um, but as far as did it frustrate me that the article went out and then, you know, it seems that there's a strong case to be made that the object is a mylar balloon. That didn't frustrate me at all because I mean, that had been what I thought essentially all along, but I think a lot of people failed to recognize the reason that we reported on that. Um, and I, I strongly suspect, and there, <laughs> over the years, there have in fact been articles, uh, science you know, journals have published studies that talk about the fact that um, many people will, for instance, on social media, they will share an article and they haven't actually read it, but they'll see the headline and they'll share the article. And they don't actually read what the article entails. So I suspect that at least a good proportion of the people who might have looked at the photo never read what was actually in the article, which quotes this atmospheric scientist saying, this looks a lot like a Mylar balloon. They certainly didn't read the newsletter where I said the same thing the following day. So 
the natural the natural question me would ask is, well, then if you thought it was a mylar bloom, why did you report on that? Now, I didn't. Again, it was Tim's article, uh, but I I have talked with Tim a fair bit about it. I mean, we talk every day, of course, with you know operating the debrief and everything. And so, I mean, I, I I'm certain he would agree uh, that. The whole point in reporting on that is the fact that, hey, I mean, the photo, yes, it had been around for a while, but Tim was able to confirm with his sources, as reported in his initial article on the transmedium vehicles and, and whatnot, which had dropped one day earlier. Tim was able to confirm that this photograph, although it had been in the public sphere since May, had apparently been looked at, all right, and had been part of an intelligence report from earlier prior to the summer. And, um, you know, there's some talk about, as he discusses in his article, some sort of a triangle photograph. But no, this photo that, that we found out had been online and which Tim reported on is not the purported triangle photograph. That's not available as far as I know. I don't, you know, have the details about that. Um, but I think a lot of people didn't really see what was in the reporting that Tim did. And they thought that, A, this was the triangle photograph. B, that this photograph, you know, people seem to think this is a UFO. Our interest primarily was in the fact that, you know, this seems to have been, and Tim seems to have confirmed that this had been something the government was looking at, and that was of significance to us, and therefore why it was reported. But again, that photo had been online for quite a while, and I certainly uh, thought and still think that it's most likely a Mylar balloon, and there have been some people who have made very, uh, I think, very accurate comparisons between the object in the photograph and a particular, you know, party balloon that depicts the famous character Batman, seems like it may be that. Now, again, um, there have also been additional controversies, which were unintentional, I'll just point out, um, about the EXIF data. For those who aren't aware of what that is, EXIF data is at the time that a photograph is taken, whether it's from a smartphone or a traditional uh, digital SLR camera, there is information about if the camera in question is set up and everything, and it, it's synced with you know time so that time and other information can be stored. Uh, when the photo is taken, there is data about the time and certain other conditions under which, you know maybe frame rate, shutter speed, what have you, depending on the camera, uh, there's information that is also stored on that photograph. Um, you know, versions of the photograph that exist online uh, contain that, that data. Um, Smaller versions of it that we put on our website did not, and John Greenwald, our friend over at the Black Vault, had pointed that out, um, which, you know, I, I was messaging with John about it yesterday. Again, a lot of people kind of made a big deal out of that, which, A, uh, to me, wasn't a big deal, and and B, also, I think, was certainly unintended. Uh, it wasn't intended to drive uh, controversy, and so, uh, again, a lot of people... I think have just been very, <laughs> they've been following it closely and it shows that they're very passionate about it and they want answers. But again, I think that uh, the importance of the photograph has a lot less to do in my way of seeing things with the object and what it very likely is. Uh, but of course, the questions about, uh, you know, why that was apparently something that government wanted to look at and why they seemed to you know class that apparently as unidentified flying or or or, or uh, unidentified aerial phenomena now i'll make one more kind of tie in here uh because during the joe rogan podcast um james fox and dr jacques valet appeared on joe rogan's podcast and at one point uh during the uh the uh, interview uh, james fox read from a piece of of paper that he had which had like an email that chris mellon had sent to him yeah and it was, I, f I found that to be a really interesting point. And he kind of raised the question, Chris Mellon, and he, I, th I think he came across sounding pretty um, critical, uh, you know, but he said, and this again, in the furtherance, I think of Elizondo's reasons for, uh, you know, resigning, 
Chris is saying we need more than a couple of guys sitting up there at the Pentagon looking at this UFO issue, right? The UAP issue. And I've seen some critical bloggers over the last few days also saying that, yeah, you know, the UFO investigation by the Pentagon, you know, apparently people are saying it's just a couple of guys sitting up there, right? Yet again, I think what people need to really understand is Chris is saying this subject deserves better attention than that. And again, uh, I think that Tim's reason for reporting on this is what, and a lot of people didn't seem to pick up on it, was why in, indeed is there what appears to be a photograph of a balloon? Why is that what's being looked at? So I think that as a matter of, again, with full respect to the government, I'm happy that in any capacity that they are looking at the potential that there is a UAP phenomenon and that, you know, since we have learned about the designation of the so-called UAP task force, that again, there is apparently going to be a report produced um, which may be made public, we'll see. But again, as a concerned citizen and a taxpayer, what I also want to see is a serious effort made to look at this phenomena uh, by qualified individuals. And that's not in any way to undermine efforts that are going on right now, which I don't know a whole lot about. My colleague, Tim McMillan, is the one that reported more extensively on that. I do think it deserves serious attention and it deserves the resources that will be required in order to put serious analytical qualitative you know, efforts toward understanding or at least assessing the phenomenon. So that's the primary reason for reporting on what appears to be a photograph of a balloon and the question that was on our mind at the time. Again, why is this something that they're looking at? Very much in line with what Chris Mellon had said to James Fox. Again, you know, we need more than a couple of guys looking at this. I think that those are all very fair points and they, they must be raised in the furtherance of uh, government accountability, transparency, and also really putting serious attention toward what could be one of the most timely issues of our time. You've made that point incredibly eloquently, and it raises, like you say, a really good point that we're looking at, let's just say, more than likely, this is a photo of a balloon, but people should really be focusing their attention on why are the government or why are these people looking at a photo of a balloon? What did they think? What did they think it could have been? You know, what what are they looking at? What other photographs might they have? And who knows, maybe we get the other photograph you talked about at some point in the future, if it indeed does exist, who knows? Yeah. Um, I find it funny, though, that we've gone from three years from we got those videos leaked and everyone wanted to see longer 4K HD, you know, immersive VR versions of these videos. And we're now going back to, yeah, look at this photograph. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but that's that's the, what the subject can do. Um, I want to ask you very quickly, what do you see the debrief becoming? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I hope that it will continue to do what we're trying to do right now, which is, you know, look at serious issues related to this topic. I mean, again, right around the time that uh, Tim's article dropped, I think maybe the very same day, I, I did a piece which was simply commenting somewhat on a very, very quick and almost humorous reference that uh, former President Barack Obama had made uh, while being interviewed by uh, late night host Stephen Colbert. Uh, there's a long tradition, at least since maybe around 2014 or 2015, but really, I mean, it goes back even further than that, with late night hosts asking politicians about UFOs and whether they've looked for them. You know, I had said a couple of years ago that Jimmy Kimmel should be awarded ufologist of the year because here's the only guy who got uh, everyone from George W. Bush to Barack Obama to then actually running for president, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Yeah. You know, he got all these people on camera and got them to talk about whether they were interested in or had as president looked for ufos and even though the former presidents don't have very much to say about that i mean it's obviously something that is interesting enough to people and so it's something that should be reported on but again 
with the article that I did on that topic, again, rather than just saying, here's what Obama said about UFOs the other night, which is what virtually every other news source did. They took the quote, you know, the soundbite, and then they made a kind of joke about it. You know, the article I did also looked at his controversial drone program, you know, why that was controversial. Drones, I think, being particularly relevant in part to the UAP debate, but I'll, yeah. I didn't make that explicit comparison, but I, I think it's inherently uh, related. And then we looked at every instance throughout his presidency that I know of that Obama actually mentioned the UFO subject and the notable fact that he was the first commander in chief ever publicly to actually bring up Area 51 randomly in a conversation during an award ceremony. That, yeah. And so, again, I think that with the debrief, what I would like to see us become is what really Tim and MJ and I are already trying to do. Rather than grab that soundbite and just regurgitate the same story that everybody else is doing, we're trying to say, okay, here's what somebody said. Let's look at all the factors and let's try to look at this from every angle. Let's try and get expert opinions on this and let's try and really raise the bar on how we're discussing these issues. We may not always succeed, but we're going to try our damnedest. Uh, before we get to listener questions and the quick fire round, Micah, um, I want to get your thoughts on, it's been a crazy 10 days, like I said, um, former Israeli space security chief uh, Hayam Eshed, I hope I've said that properly, um, has stated that the American government had an agreement with the Galactic Federation, as he called it, of extraterrestrial beings and potentially President Trump was going to spill the beans, so to speak, on aliens, basically go for full-on disclosure, but didn't because aliens don't want us to to panic. For me, regardless whether this is true or not, the language being used, the the out-there nature of the story doesn't help where the, the UFO and UAP movement, if you want to call it that, is at this point in time. Where do you sit on this story? Well... There's always this possibility when a story like this comes up that it's all true. Okay. Now, whether that's likely is another story, but I mean, there's again, that open-minded skeptic in me goes, my initial response is galactic federation. <laughs> and then I straighten up and I say, but what if it's all true? Now it's probably not, but again, I think the, the big takeaway here is that even if it were true, Right. Like you point out, and that's a great point, uh, Andy, uh, the, the way that we phrase the dialogue has so much to do with whether it is taken seriously. And, and this is, I think, yet again, coming back to controversies. You know, I mean, I'm no stranger to it with the launch of the debrief because discussing subjects like UFOs inherently drives a bit of controversy to the Stars Academy. Same sort of thing. You know, people wondering, are they really who they say they are? Are there government actors that are manipulating them? You know, um, however you want to look at it, again, among those controversies, we also have the question over the differences in opinions about the subject, uh, you know, from one member to the next. For instance, you know, you've got former government insiders like Mellon and Elizondo, who are pretty, you know, just the facts, ma'am, and they approach it pretty, you know, flat and dry. Elizondo, admirably so, I think, in interviews is uh, famously careful about how he phrases, as I'm trying to do right now, <laughs> he's careful, famously so, about how he phrases and discusses UAP, what it might be, and how government treats that subject, right? Mm -hmm. um, his colleague, um, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, and the colleague I'm talking about is Tom DeLong, uh, probably does that a little less. And again, Absolutely, that's yeah. 
It's no secret. Uh, they've I've seen the two of them appear on camera before. They did an interview earlier this year for Comic-Con remotely where they were saying this. And Elizondo, yes. again, admirably, this is something I like about him. He is a straight shooter. And the very things he said on the mic about Tom DeLong at that point, he had raised to me privately in a conversation, which just goes to show that he wouldn't say anything to someone like me that he wouldn't say to Tom in front of a live audience of thousands, which, you know, uh, and, and that reality is that Tom's a little more wide open with his beliefs on UFOs, right? So the point is, however, uh, that some in the UFO community, and especially more traditional kind of UFO researchers, and people I would say I, I would class myself as one of them, those who say, let's be careful about what we talk about. Let's try to look at the subject seriously, but let's not leap to conclusions about what its origins or source may be or nature and ultimately may be. Those of us in the community from that perspective are kind of seeing Tom talking about Antarctic bases and, you know, TR-3B black mantas and things flying around and sharing videos online that may or may not be really that <laughs> uh, at all. Could be CGI, very likely are. Uh, you know, we're kind of looking at it and going, you know, is is all of that necessarily helpful, right? And so when we have someone come out like, you know, this, this you know, Israeli, uh, you know, um, um, government official, you know, talking about galactic federations and what have you, even if it were all true, using that kind of terminology and phrasing it the way that this has appeared online is not necessarily helpful in terms of helping the UAP issue more broadly get the kind of serious attention that it deserves. And so, you know, it's always a catch-22. You never know what could end up being true, however unlikely it seems. But if you really want people to take the subject seriously, you got to deal with what sounds likely. And you have to phrase the topic in ways that are often much more, you know, sterile and sober than even UFO advocates would like to phrase those things. But there's a necessity to that in terms of trying to gradually make those baby steps toward getting respectable dialogue about the topic. So for my own part, if I were a defense official in the United States or elsewhere, the first thing I would not do is go out and use terminology like Galactic Federation if I were discussing this topic and anything that I propose as being a reality, you know, or a component of that reality related to it. Micah, like you, uh, so uh, you put right at the start of the interview, uh, there are so many different topics we could have discussed within the body of this. And just due to time constraints and, you know, this not being a six hour epic this time round, uh, I'm going to move on to listener questions where we touch on a few different other topics as well. First up, we have Luke, who has two questions for you. The first one, uh, what, in your opinion, is the most significant archaeological evidence we have to suggest that we have interacted with ETs in our past? Hmm. Well, earlier I, I touched on this, and I personally am a per I look at a lot of archaeology because there's another endeavor I'm involved with, which you know the listeners may be interested in. It's the Seven Ages Project, and you can find that at sevenages.org. And I bring that up because um, often if you are interested in archaeology, but you're also interested in UFOs, there is the expectation that you are a advocate of you know, the ancient astronaut theories and the like. And I said earlier, I'm not. And so a lot of people haven't been able to understand why are you just looking at like, you know, paleo-Indian cultures in North America and, and stuff like that. Where are the aliens, Micah? Um, trust me, if I thought that there was good evidence that there were in the archaeological record indications of a knowledge of Earth visitation by extraterrestrials, um, 
if I thought that that existed, I would really be interested in it and I would be all over it, but I don't see very much that's, you know, strongly supports that. Uh, now I'll, I will say that there are some, uh, cultural, uh, memories and there are some traditions that uh, exist, uh, that certainly are interesting to me, uh, but that I don't think are definitive evidence. And so just to try and come around back to the question that the, the, the gentleman asked there, I mean, you know, what would I say is the best evidence? One story that always has interested me is, you know, the Dogon tribe uh, in in Africa and their some of their cultural traditions, uh, some of their apparent awareness of celestial features that, you know, shouldn't have been um, perceived by those people and yet which they seem to have knowledge of for mm-hmm. you know centuries and even prior to the presumably prior to the um development of the telescope for instance you know mechanical aid for the eye so that we can actually see further and more with, with greater clarity further out in space there are certainly some interesting aspects of what we might call archaeoastronomy uh practiced by groups like the dogon and that is suggestive of them either knowing things or possessing knowledge which they shouldn't have in a pre-scientific era and that interests me. But yet again, I don't know that that necessarily can be directly equated to, therefore, alien visitation, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. And a second question, uh, moving on to a different topic, but still obviously involved in the phenomenon. To what extent do you feel that uh, unintended states of consciousness could be a rational explanation for human interaction with the phenomenon? Do you have the name of the person who asked that? Because that's a great question. It's uh, Luke Cook. Uh, he is based in the UK as well. He's a really good guy. He's a regular contributor to the show, and um, he's a budding uh, UFO investigator as well. Oh, great. Okay, Luke, uh, congrats. Great question. Uh, so I have long thought that we should try to look, you know, you look at, for instance, uh, uh, rock art at like Tassili Cave, right, in Algeria, that depicts strange-looking humanoids, right? And many modern proponents of, for instance, ancient astronaut theories uh, would look at that and say, this is a spaceman. But what you see all over the, the one of the figures, at least at Tassili Cave, is what appear to be mushrooms growing out of a guy, right? Now, I've been fascinated for a long time with the work of Terence McKenna. Uh, the late Terence McKenna, you know, again, food of the gods, he proposed some novel theories in which, you know, there have been more skeptical scientists who have said that there isn't necessarily evidence for, but I don't think that those theories are without merit because I've spent years studying entheogens or God-releasing substances, uh, you know, altered states of consciousness and the ways that these different states can be induced either chemically or through things like meditation. And I have long thought that much of the kind of cave art that we see could be interpreted as evidence of um, entheogenic experiences uh, being practiced by different cultural groups throughout time. And McKenna's general theory had been that we look at the cattle cults in various different groups in antiquity. He says, what grows on cow dung? Okay, anyone who's ever gone looking for magic mushrooms, and I'm not one of them, I've actually never done mushrooms, believe it or not, but I'm fascinated from the pharmacological you know, side of this. I'm fascinated with this. So McKenna's whole point had been, again, people might very well have worshipped cattle because they found, you know, they would be scavenging. They would find mushrooms growing on the cattle dung. They eat these mushrooms and boy, they had a wild ride. And they think, wow, these things, these cows literally crap something that can alter my mind in such a way. And so they immediately ascribe sort of religious significance to this animal. And hence in McKenna's view, perhaps the cattle cults of the ancient world. Now, that's an interesting hypothesis. 
but yet again, we go back to Tassili Cave, and what do we see on this strange-looking humanoid? We see what appear to be mushrooms growing all over him. So I definitely think that we should be looking, rather than always saying, is this alien? And many people who look at cave art that represents strange things, and they say alien, alien visitation, we should be looking at that and also asking, is this evidence that people were early on psychonauts, that they were maybe engaging in altered states of consciousness and that they were inducing these chemically uh, through psilocybin and other things, very similar to like what you see in South America with the ayahuasca or the yage. Banisteriopsis capi grows all throughout the jungle. It's not actually a, uh, it's it's not an entheogenic plant itself. It uh, Banisteriopsis capi is the one ingredient that's in, I believe, all or most versions of ayahuasca. But what it is, is it's the monoamine oxidase A inhibitor, which allows DMT found in other plants to become orally active. You could eat the leaf of a plant with the DMT and it wouldn't do anything to you. But when you brew that tea with the Banisteriopsis or the, it's better known as liana, with the liana in the in the actual chemical tea that they make, it allows the DMT to become orally active. And then once they drink the tea, you have the famous ayahuasca experience, okay, which many Graham Hancock and others have talked about uh, in, in a lot of popular literature over the last few years. So, yes, I certainly think that what Luke raises is a very important point, and certainly, certainly with regard to archaeological evidence or purported evidence for contact in the ancient world, we need to be considering that. But now, a final, very tantalizing proposition on that point. Again, if significantly advanced intelligences wanted to make contact and they were truly encumbered by the great distances across the cosmos that make it very difficult for biological organisms to travel— is it not in, is it not at least possible and worthy of exploration scientifically that altered states of consciousness might be this is a bold proposition and it's purely speculation on my part so let me just be clear but again is it really crazy to think that we might not be able to engage in forms of communication or contact using those what traditional groups have called spiritual technologies maybe what seems so mysterious to us but again firmly in the in the in the realm of pharmacology today upon further exploration perhaps could reveal some very novel things in the future once we have a better understanding of the metabolic processes that are underlying that. And again, uh, I would highly recommend a book by uh, Dr. Rich, uh, or rather Rick Strassman, MD, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. Note, I'll just add this, note some of the similarities between the chemically induced DMT experiences of some of those participants in that DEA-approved study with D, uh, DMT back in the 90s, look at the similarity between those experiences and purported alien abductions. I mean, some of them are too close almost for comfort. That's why they call them gateway drugs. Yep. Uh, so, <laughs> um, and you know what? Just off the back of that answer, great question, Luke. Uh, I'm glad I'm not transcribing this interview. This would not have been released for a month. Uh, but thank you for that. Um, Craig asks, how difficult would it be to take a picture of a 48 by 48 centimeter object while traveling at 100 of knots per hour? Seems a tough task for a cell phone. So Craig's obviously thinking of the pilot himself or herself who has taken the picture of that. What we're what we're going with is a Mylar balloon. Um, slightly different take on, on that uh, incident. Yeah, and again, uh, as Tim reported, it had been his understanding that, um, and there's still a whole lot of, you know, loose ends about that. A lot of questions remain about who exactly the pilot was, but I mean, I've seen something, I believe it was Roger Glassell uh, on Twitter the other day. Uh, and, and I know John Greenwald was commenting on this too. And, uh, and behind the scenes, you know, the debrief guys, we've all been looking at it too. Um, there have been some 
there's been some very interesting sleuthing with regard to the insignia or the the decal on the on the helmet of the pilot reflecting off of the glass of the cockpit which they were able to use to determine the uh you know some information about the 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 uh pilot the operation the time frame during which the photo was taken i mean mm-hmm. of course the exif data helps with that too uh, but it, it's it's kind of a fascinating process to see people doing this detective work. Um, unfortunately, again, I, I suspect that we're all looking at a balloon, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but again, in Tim's report, he said that it seems to have been conveyed um, that the pilot uh, felt that this was not a balloon in terms of the be- the behavior of the object. But I could, uh, you know, there. There are so many different circumstances, atmospheric and otherwise, that might account for why an object, an actual Mylar balloon, doesn't appear to be behaving like one, you know, in a given circumstance, and thereby it might be interpreted as something else. And you know what? That's probably because, like all other human beings on Earth, pilots, too, are human. You know, we're not perfect. Humans are very, very, very capable of fallibility and of, you know, misperceiving things, and that's something that has long been with us with UFO studies. Now, the problem, I think, Andy, is that skeptics often say, well, because of humans, you know, and they're they're being really good at misperceiving things, then we can explain every UFO sighting. I don't know that that's necessarily the case. I definitely think that when there's an abundance of good evidence, detailed descriptions, multiple witness encounters, you know, corroborated by photographs, corroborated by radar, corroborated by, you know, technology like the Raytheon uh, at FLIR targeting pod, and of course, the videos that that technology has produced, we certainly need to say, is this really just operator error or are we indeed seeing what appears to be a corollary for the existing anecdotal data that's been around already for decades, that there appear to be objects of technological origin, which we can't identify, that operate in our airspace, that can move through our bodies of water. And wherever they are from, they are here right now and have been for a while, and we don't know where they're from. Either of the possibilities or any of the possibilities, I think they're equally fascinating. Like I've said, if it turns out it was US, Russian, Chinese technology that's doing this, there's still a whole load of questions for me that that come off the back of that, which is why I'm fascinated in the subject and why other people should be as well. And that's what the debrief helps with. A couple more listener questions. Uh, Graham has asked, will the release of the photograph and its mainstream exposure harm serious UAP debate, given so many are talking about its potential to be a balloon? I don't think so. Uh, as long as people understand the big takeaway uh, in terms of what I know Tim intended when he was publishing this, and again, which you know many of our colleagues in the field have picked up on, I got to give a shout out to my buddy Alejandro Rojas. I mean, right after the article dropped, he was tweeting and saying, and again, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he said, if this is obviously a balloon, and yet this is something the government had had interest in, it raises some necessary questions about the current government investigations, which people do have a right to know about. And again, that is very much in line, perfectly in line with what Chris Mellon was saying as read by James Fox during his appearance with Valet on the Joe Rogan experience. And that's really, I think, the most important point, unfortunately, and I mean no dis, you know, I'm not trying to to discredit UFO Twitter or anything like that, because I interact with a lot of those people's pretty, you know, pretty frequently, even though I <laughs> try to limit my time on Twitter. But I am afraid that a lot of people online and maybe people who aren't as interested even in UFOs per se, but just happened to come across the photograph because it got a lot of coverage. I mean, a lot of larger news sites were kind of reporting on what the debrief had broken. And so, you know, we've, we've gotten a lot of attention from other coverage in the media. 
but I'm sure a lot of people who only may have a, just a passing interest in UFOs, they didn't read what Tim reported. They saw the photograph and they're like, it's a balloon. But again, that's missing the fundamental point. We want to know why the government's interested in a photograph of a balloon, if that's indeed what it is, which I strongly suspect it is. And so, you know, Alejandro nailed it early on. And I hope that people will look at it and they will ask those kinds of questions or ask the kinds of questions that Chris Mellon had raised, as indicated by James Fox. You know, is the government, and this is with all respect and the hope that they are, but is government really putting the kind of effort, the manpower, the funding, you know, and, and, and supplying the kind of resources that we really need in order to get to the bottom of whether there is a phenomenon. And yes, if it is indeed a phenomenon and a technology that we can't account for, if there is a threat potential inherently, uh, you know, presented by it. I mean, these questions deserve attention. We just want to know that that's what indeed they're getting. couple more questions. Uh, Carl Mann has asked, what's the hardest you've ever had to work to get a source on site? Uh, for me, uh, you know, I don't have a whole lot of trouble. I mean, I I operate a little differently uh, from from Tim with respect to Tim and his reporting. I, th I think his reporting holds true. And people have asked me, for instance, with the Transmedium Vehicles article, what the big takeaways were. And in fact, we talk about this on my podcast, the Micah Hanks program, even before the article dropped. I gave away a huge teaser. I said, Tim, I said to him, because Tim and MJ were on the show with me. And I said, Tim, I think the biggest takeaway from this article is what it doesn't say. And if, again, the UFO community, I've often said, um, and I know Tim agrees with this, um, the UFO community, I think, has somewhat been, how do I want to phrase this? They, they've been conditioned to expect revelations or revelatory, you know, reporting on the UFO topic. And where we really saw that get a little out of hand and, and then the big buildup and then the drop was, I think, the most recent New York Times article which many anticipated would be about crash wreckage retrievals. I think a lot of people had built up in their mind that we're going to finally get confirmation that Roswell was a real thing. I mean, that it actually happened. Uh, and when that didn't end up being what went to print, a lot of us were looking at the article short form, fairly short form compared with previous reporting by the New York times team of mm -hmm. Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Kane and Helene Cooper in the first article from 2017 uh, you know, I think a lot of people saw that shorter article and kind of said, you know, what exactly is being reported here? And um, shortly thereafter, Kane and Blumenthal went on a podcast and, uh, you know, had mentioned uh, Project Unity, of course, was the show, uh, mentioned that, you know, we didn't feel like the UFO community hyping this, you know, to the point of sensation, rabid sensation was helpful. And so, um, again, the big takeaway here is that have low expectations, I think. Now, that said, with regard to Tim's article and what it didn't say being so important, what I meant by that was the fact that there wasn't anybody that came out and said, we've got crash wreckage retrievals. You know, we know what these phenomena are and they aren't from Earth. At the end, one of Tim's sources, the Air Force general who goes on record, he says, you know, no data that we have is strongly supportive of the idea that this is a Russian or a Chinese technology. We simply don't know what it is. And I know that that kind of thing is very frustrating for the UFO community who want, you know, the government to disclose, you know, the information that they've had. That's not what they got. They got a guy saying, we don't know what it is. But that to itself, I think, was very important. And here, here again, to me, that was a big takeaway. We've got government officials saying, again, just like they said at the time of the official release of the three videos earlier this year, 
by the DOD with the press statement from the Pentagon, I mean, they're saying we don't know what these things are. We class them as unidentified. That alone should be incredibly revelatory. And again, Tim's article reported in the furtherance of that point. Now, as far as, you know, the question about, you know, who's the hardest person to get on record about that? Um, generally, I don't report on something if I can't get someone to, you know, go on record, uh, whether it's someone coming on my podcast or what have you. Uh, nor would Tim, although in the instance with his article, there were some special circumstances where in order to be able to confirm certain aspects of what he was reporting, which first had been obtained information about this briefing from a FOIA request. And then finally, of course, the statement he got from the general, those two things, again, are absolutely uh, fact-based and he is able to provide the chain of custody or the name in the case of the general. But in order to verify certain aspects about what that FOIA that he filed detailed, and then later what the general said, he had to speak to certain people who were only willing to speak on background. Um, and I've noticed a kind of funny thing about that with regard to, uh, especially in the last four years, you know, the current presidential administration here in the United States. Uh, many people have really, I think, relied on background reporting, more journalists, that is, more than they should, because there have been so many leaks coming out of the Trump administration. Which is kind of funny because uh, it seems to me that they were fine with people speaking off record as long as what they were saying was something that they agreed with or wanted to hear. You know, what a bad job this guy and his his group are doing over here or whatever, right? So, and this isn't about politics. The point I'm making is it seems that people are okay with a background source as long as they agree with what the person's saying. Some of Tim's critics, I think, and this is a fair point, I think that they inherently disagree with the idea that there's a reality to UFOs and therefore they see Tim's use of maybe a background source as being less credible, you know, but I think that at times there's also ideology that fuels some of their differences with that, which if we look at the political environment in, in the United States right now, you know, again, I think that we've, we've seen uh, just the opposite of that. I think as long as people agree with what's being said, if that makes sense. Yeah. That the UFO subject and the UFO community, there's so many different realities at play for different people that if it doesn't fit, and we talk about narratives and people not liking TTSA's narrative, if it doesn't fit their narrative, then it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It's not correct. So um, I want to move on. Thank you everyone for those listener questions, because just for time constraints, I've not managed to get through them all. And I want to just finish off on the quick fire round before giving Micah some last words. Micah, so quick fire, a couple of subjects and topics that we've touched on. I just want one or two words from you or a little more if you if you want on each of these just to kind of finish off the first one being to the stars academy um well they're human and again i think people need to remember that uh, i would i would ask people to think the same of the uap task force uh you know the same of uh, the debrief or anybody else uh, who is trying to engage in dialogue uh, just remember that and i see so much it's either these guys are the worst thing that's ever happened or you know to the stars academy are going to you know they're going to release all the files they're going to lead the path toward the future of disclosure they're just humans but i really appreciate the spirit in which they have operated and what they've tried to do the next one is one of those humans it's at louise elizondo he's just a human he drinks a beer i'm sure on sunday nights like everybody else does you know cracks one sits with his wife you know who i had the pleasure of meeting on video uh, for a brief moment uh, while i was talking with lou um my takeaway of Lou Elizondo. I mean, there were a lot of questions and a tremendous amount of controversy after he first came public and was reported on in the New York Times. But Lou, again, seems to be a person who uh, is interested in the phenomena. I wouldn't say that he's someone maybe since childhood, like I am, who has read about the phenomenon, who has, you know, dove, dove deeply into the history of it. Um, 
he is a person who coming into that topic from a very different direction, but coming to a lot of the same realizations and in many ways, maybe almost in more impactful ways than someone like me who's looked at history in relation to that topic. You know, here's a guy who worked in the government. Hunting UFOs wasn't his job. I mean, it was part of what he did. But I mean, there were a whole broad array of things that in the interest of national security, Lou Elizondo did while working in government. And that UFOs would apparently be the reason that he resigned, right, from his career and enters the public sphere in order to try and push this dialogue further down the field. I mean, that says an awful lot about how seriously he takes the subject. But having spoken to him some, and I understand, I think you'll be talking with him in the future too. Please tell him I said hello, and I hope you guys have a good conversation. But again, Lou seems to be a very straight shooter and a person who is, like many, after you know reviewing the data at hand, he's concerned about what this topic may entail. Not that we should be afraid of it but he's concerned about whether it's being treated seriously. Yeah, Lou is definitely on my Christmas list for for guests for 2021, folks. Um, Area 51. Well, you know, Area 51 (laughs) has this mystique about it. But again, uh, I, I did an episode of my podcast, I think, in late maybe 2018 or 2019. I guess it was, I don't know. If you go back in my back catalog, it's called Welcome to Watertown. You know, I featured some audio from a short film that uh, had been released by the National Archives. A lot of people are probably unaware that, you know, back in the 60s, there was a documentary film made at Area 51. People say, where are the alien bodies? Where's the hangar with the stuff from Roswell? But I mean, the reason that a film had been made at Area 51 is because the families of the employees, it was made for them so that they could see what's going on out there. Uh, There had been phone books that had been published with telephone numbers and directories and things that explicitly mentioned Area 51, and those had been in the public, you know, record for years. John Greenwald, again, who I mentioned earlier, has pointed this out. Um, And so I I recommend that people, if, you know, if you're really interested in UFOs, a lot of people are like, what are they keeping out there at Area 51? You know, what did Bob Lazar see? You know, I say, if you really want to study UFOs, grab some good books on the history of the subject. Um, It's an old one, but uh, Dr. David M. Jacobs' book, The UFO Controversy in America, which was published back in the 19, maybe 74. It's an older book, but he brings you from around 1947 up to uh, 1973 and gives you a good history. Also, Richard Dolan's series, UFOs in the National Security State. If you want to look back further in time, like I have attempted to do, you know, Definitely check out Wonders in the Sky by Chris Albeck and Jacques Vallée. Also check out Vallée's book, Anatomy of a Phenomena, but any of his books are great. But again, I raise raise those books here in relation to that because I'm trying to say people look so much at Area 51 and it's not going to live up to the hype, okay? Very much like so much of the UFO reporting right now. But people look to that as though, well, the answer's there. And the reason they do that is because they haven't been to Area 51. And it is a very sensitive, you know, high, uh, you know, highly classified, um, high security installation. But it's that myth and that intrigue that builds around the things that we can't see. I can, t- I can guarantee you, you'll find more answers to the UFO mystery just by reading well-written books that document the history of the phenomenon. Books also like uh, government uh, UFOs and government, rather, uh, by um, Robert Powell and Michael Swords. Again, get a big, thick history on you know history book on UFOs. Don't expect that the government's hiding stuff at Area Fifty One, and that that's where you're going to find the answers. Do you prefer the term UFO or UAP? I don't care. 
Not neither. And lastly, what is disclosure to you, Micah? Not much. But let me, okay, I'll, I'll at least, you know, elaborate just a bit there because, I mean, again, it just comes back to what I'm saying about Area 51. I worry that people expect that the government is hiding so much. And of, of course, there are some, there are some things that they're withholding, right? I wouldn't be so foolish as to think that the government is completely transparent on all the UFO information that it has, right? But if one day we were to find out that there was no real significant information being withheld, I worry about the big time disclosure advocates. And I've said this for years, Andy, I worry that, you know, what would they, if, if, if it turns out that the government's like, you know, we had two more videos of, you know, what could be peanuts dangling on monofilament. I don't, I don't think that's what they are, but I, again, I'm referencing Mick West, you know, yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah. Mick's efforts to try and get to the bottom of it in his own, in his own way, which is very respectable. I, I appreciate Mick West. But again, if we found out that, that all we had was a couple more videos, right. I think a lot of people would feel really let down, but yet again, just like with the New York times article on crash wreckage retrievals or, 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 you know, just like all the speculation about the debrief before we launched. I mean, I'm looking at all the Reddit threads and people making up their mind before we had even launched what this was all going to be about, you know, don't let your expectations get ahead of you. And I would say the same thing to the disclosure people. It's a noble effort to put pressure on government and hope that we can you know, push for broader transparency on these issues. But I think as important and perhaps time will show it to have been more important than transparency itself, we need to put effort on government to seriously look at the phenomena. And if in the eventual sense we don't learn of significant information the government has been withholding, it's going to come right back onto the scientific community to say, okay, well, now we have to look at the phenomena, discern what it may be, try to reach a consensus on what that might be and how we best approach studying it. Awesome. Micah, you have been more than generous with your time. Do you want to just let the listeners know how they can get in touch with you? Uh, of course, all the links we've talked about, the debrief information will be in the description of the podcast as well. Certainly. Yeah. Just uh, you, my personal website is micahanks.com and you can you know, find me online there. You can also find me uh, on Facebook at uh, Micah Hanks Official, on Twitter at Micah Hanks. Um, and uh, my podcasts are all available there at micahanks.com forward slash podcast. So definitely check those out. And Obviously, a lot of people who are listening will have already been there, but if you haven't, just head on over to thedebrief.org. To the that is the website where Tim McMillan, MJ Benias, yours truly, and a lot of fantastic authors uh, like Ryan Sprague, Chris Rutkowski, you know, and, and many others have been contributing articles over the last few days, you know, Steve McDaniel helping us out as well. So again, it's it's been a labor of love, but things are coming together. We're having a good time, and I hope that we are keeping that conversation going. You certainly are, and I'll thank you for your efforts as well. Micah, look forward to welcoming you back onto the show, hopefully in 2021 as well. Let me know, I'll be here. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet, and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer.
little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Four. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more. Consider your space, consider your life, 